Welcome to The Paleo View. I'm best-selling author and co-creator of realeverything.com, Stacey Toth. I focus on being healthy inside and out through real life, food, and talk. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times best-selling author and creator of thepaleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Welcome back, Paleo View listeners. We are on episode TBD. Wait, wait, wait. wait. <laughs> whoa, whoa, Sarah's Sarah. updating the show notes. It's 3.30 and we're happy you're here. How are you, Sarah? I, um, a- as you noticed as we were like just getting our bearings before we actually started recording, am in a very bubbly, but maybe not that coherent of a mood. So this is going to be an interesting episode. I mean, you're like extra coherent. It will be interesting. (laughs) It's just, it's a lot coming at you. uh, You know what? I have had so much life in the last couple of weeks. Like I've just had so many things and like the full gamut from like the most amazing, awesome to just really intense work-related stuff to like tragedy, like awful stuff all at once. And it's just been kind of like unrelenting for a couple of weeks. And so I'm just in this space where like today I actually took a bit of a breath. Um, I actually had a, a, I had one of those naps where it was like, I couldn't actually keep my eyes open anymore. So it was a good thing I laid down because otherwise I would have just fallen when I fell asleep standing up. Um, But it was was one of those like, oh, I'm not going to make it if I don't, if I don't have a nap. But um, it, it was a better, I took a little bit of space today, which was much, uh, much, much needed. And now I'm just in this like weird, foggy, it's going to get busy again tomorrow, but it's all good. It's all good. I, you know, this is one of the things I was having this conversation with a friend and she was sort of saying like, she was talking about that her health challenges and, um, she had just, you know, she's going through all of this health stuff. And then she also just finished a like master's level chemistry class online. And she was like, this is so much harder than when I was 25. Like, I don't know what I was thinking. And I said, here's the thing. Like, do you remember how, you know, you, you would have like three that things was to do on a weekend? That, that was all that was happening in your life. Right. <laughs> but I, I just, I remember like having three things to do in a weekend and it being like so stressful, I couldn't handle it in at you know, that sort of time of my, my life. And now I'm like, that's like, that's every day. I'm just fine. And just sort of, you know, like part, part of it is, I think um, I've really come to the realization that we never really grow up. It's like a long, continuous maturation and experiences shaping us throughout our entire lives. And you can call yourself grown up at some point, but it's not, you're, it's not static, right? It's not like, and now here I am, this is me for the rest of my life. Um, but one of the things that I have really found over my life is like my capacity to juggle so many different balls and just have so much going on and be okay and just kind of just keep swimming as I go through it has increased dramatically. And that has been sort of my biggest, I think, like life lesson learning experience over the last, you know, just, a, it's just been a couple of years since I was 25. I mean, it's, it's been a lot of, a lot of learning in just a short period of time, really. Wow. 25 was a while ago, Stacey. <laughs> just last week. It's fine. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> yeah. Well, I too um, have had a lot of life. I like how you described that. Though my uh, entire life, I've had a lot of life and have always been a multitasker. I worked full time when I went to college. And so there was, there was always many things to juggle. But uh, I just think this time of year is you've got just so much more stress, whether it be good or bad, um, and additional things to do that it just ends up, you know, filling, filling your plates. So we're just going to jump in to this week. I think it's a conversation that we are extending from last week. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting concept that it did not occur to me when 
I was the mother of small children, infants slash small children, but it's certainly something that I became more aware of as I understood nutrient density and, you know, our family went paleo and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, I am interested to hear your take given our probiotic discussion last year on the concept of what that looks like for infants and children, um, especially those who maybe are not being breastfed or were born via C-section, which increases, I don't want to say risk. Maybe the science will support risk, but it it actually does. You can say that you can say that sentence and the science will back you up. Okay. Well, at the very least, certainly there are advantages the other way. And so how do you balance that? Right? Like that the scenarios aren't always perfect. So how do you manage that? I'm sure you'll get into the science. It sounds like. Uh, I will. I, you know, science is uh, kind of my jam. So I'm always happy to, to get into the science. Kind no, of my you're, jam. you're right. I have every time you say that, I imagine you looking at me with disdain, working on my coffee machine, telling me you have a PhD <laughs> and we'll figure it out. <laughs> I am glad those you know, nine years of, of university education didn't go to waste and I figured it out myself. So so it's all true, good. true that you did, you did figure <laughs> it out. Um, yeah, I thought this was when I saw this question come into um, our, our podcast queue, I was like, oh, this is the perfect follow up after talking about um, the, the role that probiotics can have in fixing gut dysbiosis last week, because this is a, a very different situation. So I'll read Kari's question, and then we can go from there. So Kari writes, Hi, Sarah and Stacy. First, let me say that I love your show. I've been following AIP for a couple of years now, but just discovered the podcast. I love going through the old episodes. I just switched out all my Pampers baby wipes for water wipes. Anyway, I recently read this. Can I just stop you to say, I wonder Mm -hmm. why we picked her question, you know, when she's just going to be that nice. She, you know, she's a new listener and she's already figured out the key to getting her question read <laughs> on an episode is to I, I am a little the question with compliments. I am a little concerned that she's just discovered the show and is going through old episodes and is already at wipes because if she has consumed <laughs> that, well, that, that many episodes, year, right? yeah, if that many episodes in a short amount of time is a little concerning. So maybe Carrie's going backwards, in which case maybe it won't be as bad. <laughs> you just okay. jump from the beginning to the front. For any new listeners, this is and this is your first episode of the Paleo View that you've ever listened to. I would say if you want to catch more old episodes, work backwards is a great way to do it, and totally. then stop stop when they start not being good, <laughs> and just don't worry. If you, you know, miss the first few dozen, I would say the first year was fun. We had a lot of guests on, and then we and then, and then we found our stride I yeah think. anyway and moving that we have a way that we like to do this podcast it works for us that's what matters mm-hmm. and you listeners um anyway shout out to carrie for swapping her now you wipes. say carrie and i say kari and i'm a about Canadian to thing? Thing. you say carrie and i say kari carrie Kari. i told you sarah's concerning Curry. tonight all right let's get back to the science here let's weird uh, had a best friend growing up whose name was spelt the same K A R I, who everyone called her Carrie, but it was supposed to be pronounced Kari. And mm. as an adult now, she goes by Kari. And the babysitter from the first Incredibles movie is named Kari, K A R I. And in the little short where she is talking to the FBI agent guy, whatever his name is, she does this whole thing about how her name is like Carrie, but it's Kari. And <laughs> it's the most amazing thing. If you've ever known somebody with the name Kari, spelt Carrie, who gets called Carrie all the time, even though their name's Kari. <laughs> I'm going to continue with Carrie Kari's question. Anyway, I recently read this article in the New York Times on the lack of bifidobacterium infantis in babies. And we'll put a link in the show notes to the article because it is a fascinating article for people to read. Would love to hear your thoughts on this. Is this a contributor to autoimmune issues? Is there really nothing we can do about it? I found a probiotic supplement, Evivo. Thoughts on giving this to my one-year-old? What about my four-year-old who already has Graves and Hashimoto's or even giving it to myself? Thanks, Kari or Carrie. 
however she pronounces her name. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just go ahead and answer the or even giving it to myself and suggest if you haven't yet, listen to last week's episode (laughs) where we talk about probiotics and our recommended adult probiotic. Um, This week, however, we're going to focus on healthy bacteria and probiotics in infant and young child guts. Correct, Sarah? Correct. Sweet. Um, So I I, I kind of want to summarize what's in this New York Times article on sort of new research about Bifidobacterium infantis. But I thought it was probably better to sort of take a step back and sort of talk about the development of the gut microbiome and how we even get the gut microbiomes that we have. So there's really interestingly some new information showing that we actually get some bacteria seeding our gut microbiome before birth. Um, So um, we actually have what's called uh, either like a blood microbiome or a serum microbiome. So there are bacteria that uh, probably originate in the gut that do get across the gut barrier, probably more so if, we have, if we're not healthy. But, you know, anytime you have an infection, um, that's going to increase intestinal permeability. So even a perfectly healthy person with a very healthy gut will have these periods of time in their life where gut, gut bacteria are getting into their blood. And that seems to be actually a really normal thing. So from there, they can travel throughout your whole body. And we know that we have microbiomes in every barrier tissue. So we have them in our lungs. We have them in our skin. We have them in our sinuses. Um, obviously, there's you know a specific bacteria that lives in the, in the vaginal canal, which is relevant to how we get our, our gut bacteria in the first place. But we also seem to have these bacteria in – we can find them in organs – um, it's interestingly, they're, they're sometimes found in tumors, in cancer. And it, there's some researchers who think that, you know, they might be like an infectious agent. But then you start looking at them, you're like, well, this is a really important probiotic. So how can it be causing the cancer? So there's other researchers who think that these bacteria are actually moving into these tumors as a way of trying to help defend our bodies. Like they're actually um, like trying to help us out in those in those situations. So uh, we we start out with uh, some bacteria uh, that we actually get in utero, and then our dominant exposure that seems to be uh, really crazy important for starting our gut microbiome off on the right foot is the exposure to the vaginal canal microbiome through a natural delivery. So historically speaking, C-sections were relatively rare. And so this uh, process is how we got exposed to our microbiomes. What happens in C-section babies um, is they get exposure through skin contact. It's one of the reasons why the skin contact is so important. So they'll, they'll still put um, a just delivered C-section baby on a mother's chest. Um, they'll still try to get um, you know, um, a mother breastfeeding as, as soon as possible after a C-section. And it definitely changes what type of species are in the gut because it tends to be more sort of skin microbiome species as opposed to gut microbiome species. But there's a fair amount of overlap in terms of what are probiotic bacteria for the gut and for the skin. So it's definitely not as good as a vaginal birth, but the gut microbiome kind of catches up. So then the next can major just, source... Can I just mm-hmm. pause you for a second? To clarify, I know that you know this, but I want to make sure our listeners know this. When we say not as good, we're not judging. Everybody's right. birth results in babies. This is what matters or not. Sometimes there's a birth that results without a baby, and that's an even greater loss to have. But as the mom of three C-section babies, I know, Sarah, you're not judging me. You're just saying the beneficial bacteria are not as good right. coming through a C-section versus vaginal canal. So this show could potentially be upsetting for some women who didn't have the ideal either birth or breastfeeding relationship that you wanted. And we are not here and we have plenty of shows going back to this in prior years. And I would recommend you go listen to those shows where we talk about, you know, ways to improve and our thoughts on all of this stuff, especially when Sarah and I's kids were younger. But we just want to make abundantly clear that we are supportive of 
every parenting relationship that might be, you might be fostering or adopting a child and therefore, you know, these things weren't a possibility and you're trying to give this child the best healthy life now, or perhaps it just didn't work for you for medical reasons. Like there's a lot of people with thyroid issues and that is known to be, you know, in in hindering on a breastfeeding relationship and the supply that you have. Like we get all of that. It's not a judgment. What we're here to do is to talk about why the science supports this if you can and what alternatively we can do if you can't. So there is, there is hope and we're going to talk about that, but I just, I just wanted to like lay that foundation because I, I'm assuming you feel the same way, but I won't speak for you. I do. So, I mean, there's, there's so much, you know, this is kind of a loaded topic because as we talk about birth experiences, um, you know, I did not have the birth experiences that I carefully planned. Um, I, you know, we talk about breastfeeding and these are really important for the gut microbiome. But one of the things that um, uh, maybe we can, I, I need to check and see what the, the copyright uh, permission is. There's this great cartoon out of a scientific paper. Um, and it's this little like the microbiome through life. And it has the pregnant mom and she's got a little like speech bubble. And it says, the best I can do is keep my own microbial composition healthy and balanced. And then there's the little baby and it says vaginal delivery underneath. And the little baby's got a speech bubble that says, thanks, mom, your microbiota are super, especially your bacteroides, lactobacillus, bifidobacterium, parabacteroides, Escherichia, and Shigella species. Is this for life what you're saying right now? <laughs> this is, I am reading this cartoon right now. And then there's like this branch and there's this other little baby and it has cesarean section written underneath and it goes, no worries, mom, I will form my own microbiome real soon. And then it keeps going like all the way. So it's really like the paper is about how the healthy microbiome is actually different through life. So what a baby's microbiome is different from just basically as soon as they start eating solids. Uh, a teenager microbiome with the hormone environment change is very different. An adult microbiome is different. An older adult microbiome dif- is different. And then an elderly um, microbiome is different. So there are these sort of like broad changes that you see through life and that are actually associated with like health and old age. And uh, even like if you look at centenarians, like people who make it to 100, there's sort of like a characteristic healthy microbiome that it actually looks more like a middle-aged adult microbiome than uh, the more average elderly person. So there, there is a sort of like broad change that happens. It's really interesting. It's not really relevant to the podcast. But what I do like about that cartoon is that it really emphasizes that there are multiple sources for exposure to probiotic species. And the normal route is you would get some exposure in the womb, you'll get exposure through vaginal delivery, and you'll get exposure through breast milk. But that's not the only way. Um, and what's really interesting about talking about breastfeeding, again, without try- like trying to, to talk about this in a very uh, clinical terms and not in a, uh, you know, if this was a challenge for you, if this was not something that you were able to do, it's not about trying to make anybody feel guilty. This is just, you know, what the science shows about benefits of breastfeeding, right? Those are well known and there's still barriers to doing it that even if you know it's the best choice, it doesn't work for you. And that that's just the situation. And that's where talking about other ways of getting exposure to these bacteria is really interesting. So um, breast milk has a ton of bacteria in it. Um, So there's... um, there's a lot of bifidobacterium species, including bifidobacterium infantis, which is uh, the topic of, of Kari's question. Uh, there's also lots of lactobacillus, clostridium, um, actinobacteria. So these are all uh, broad types of bacteria that encapsulate many different species, right? So there's like 180 different species of lactobacillus um, that are all known to have really important probiotic effects, which means they have beneficial effects on our health. Um, And typically, a formula-fed baby's gut microbiome looks quite different. And it's not necessarily the probiotic exposure from breast milk that is, like, that's certainly one factor. But the other factor is the type of sugars that are in breast milk that are not in formula. So breast milk has all of these kinds of carbohydrates that uh, a baby can't digest. 
the baby is not digesting those carbohydrates in breast milk. It's feeding the gut bacteria. And there is a whole pile of research to try to figure out what are those carbohydrates and how can we replicate them to put them in formula, which is actually, I think, really good research. It may be a sort of futile effort because there are literally like thousands of different carbohydrates in milk and they need to like identify. I mean, there's so many different, there's growth factors and immune modulators and um, compounds that impact gut barrier, right? Breast milk has all of these different sort of functional compounds that are actually impacting health beyond sort of basic nutrition. And so there's a whole field of research in terms of really trying to understand breast milk composition and figure out how to make a perfect replica of that so that formula-fed infants don't have uh, these, right? So if you're formula-fed or if you're born by C-section, it does things like increases risk of obesity, of developing diabetes, of asthma, right? There's this aspect of the gut microbiome early in life, educating the immune system, and this thing about early exposure to beneficial bacteria being at least correlated with, I mean, it's not the be-all and end-all, but there is this correlate of if you have good bacteria from the beginning, you're likely to have good bacteria throughout your life. Now, here's the thing. It might not be that if you start off with good bacteria, those bacteria keep growing your whole life. It might be that in a situation where you're a family where you have a vaginal birth and you're breastfed for a long period of time, that that is a family that has different access to healthier foods, um, that has different right socioeconomic factors that can contribute to gut, gut microbiome health. So for example, uh, stress reduces the diversity of the gut microbiome. Not getting enough sleep reduces the diversity of the gut microbiome. If you're living in a situation of, say, poverty, for example, that is a stressful situation. So there's these other factors that can sort of correlate with um, formula feeding and with C-section births that might actually be the more direct determinants rather than this idea that, uh, you know, having good bacteria from the start is what's going to set you up. It, it might have a lot more to do with this entire collection of factors that are influencing the gut microbiome and the fact that, you know, things like C-sections tend to go hand in hand with formula feeding because of the challenges to breastfeeding when you don't have the hormones that are associated with delivery, right? So it, it kind of... It's not really a, you know, A leads directly to B. It's more like A leads to B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, right? It keeps going down the line. And then all of those things together create the situation where the the gut microbiome is not as ideal and it's potentially a gut microbiome that is uh, going to increase risk of chronic health problems. So that's, uh, you know, where we would norm, where a baby would normally get their gut microbiome. Now, given that uh, we're passing on bacteria through breast milk, uh, through exposure to the vaginal canal, the mother's gut microbial composition is really, really key here. So you can only pass on the good guys that you have in your body, which is why this New York Times article was so fascinating. So Bifidobacterium infantis, it's actually... Um, a substrain of Bifidobacterium longum. So it's Bifidobacterium longum infantis. That's usually shortened. It's a very, very key uh, probiotic strain that has been linked to all kinds of great things. Um, it is very strongly anti-inflammatory. It's an immune modulator, so it really helps regulate the immune system. It's a very, very important a vitamin producer. It's a lactic acid producing bacteria. So that lowers the pH of the intestines. And most of our most important probiotic strains like to live in a slightly acidic environment. Uh, so that also helps create an environment that is more conducive to supporting a healthy microbial community. So these types of sort of keystone species that help create an environment where all of the other great species can grow are really, really important. They're linked to all kinds of, you know, sort of health benefits through life. So Bifidobacterium infantis lowers levels of inflammation. It's been it's actually been used as a probiotic 
supplement to treat ulcerative colitis, psoriasis, chronic fatigue syndrome. So it does have this uh, clinical benefit in autoimmune disease. And um, what was really interesting was this New York Times article um, brought together some new research showing that um, babies who don't have bifidobacterium infantis in their gut microbiomes or as children are more likely to develop allergies and type 1 diabetes and more likely to be overweight. So this one strain seems to be really, really important for basically setting up the gut microbiome environment later in life. And the like scary statistics that were being shared in this particular uh, study was that this strain is kind of just disappearing. And it's disappearing because there's a rise in cesarean births. There is a rise in formula in place of, of breastfeeding. And there is a still increasing use of antibiotics, especially antibiotics when not you know, completely required. There's also, you know, more uh, cleaners, right? We're, we're living in a more sterile environment. We're not spending time outside. We're not eating foods that support the growth of this bacteria. And what this has done is we're now at a point where nine out of 10 babies, at least how the, you know, from the sample that these, these researchers looked at, don't have bifidobacterium infantis in their, in their guts. So, you know, this is, like just a really key strain and it's actually in the in a, a a normal sort of healthy baby that's born you know healthy parents uh born vaginally and breastfed like bifidobacterium would actually be the dominant strain until they start eating solids so it's actually the probably one of the most important strains that that a young baby can have so i think Kari's question really gets at okay so if we don't have this uh, should we should we be supplementing with it? And this is exactly where research is going. So there are now uh, formula brands that put Bifidobacterium longus uh, directly into the the formula. There is some uh, some um, I guess conflicting data about survivability. So whether or not you know it's just a powdered uh, freeze dried bacteria inside a formula there, it's different than taking a capsule, right? If you're an adult, you would take this in a capsule. So there's uh, some concern that the way it's added to formula, it's not actually alive. So it can't actually seed the gut microbiome or that such a small percentage of it is alive, that it, it's not enough to properly seed the gut microbiome. But what's been really interesting is that um, this, uh, actually the same company that makes the um, Avivo supplement has had their particular sub-substrain of bifidobacterium infantis. It's called EVC001. They have done testing with that particular substrain as a supplement in they've done it in um uh they've done it in starting seven seven days after birth. Um and they've looked at how that changes the gut microbiome um, of babies. Um, and they've looked at how that persists. And uh, they've actually been able to show with fairly high doses, uh, so sort of 20, um, let me see if I can understand math, 20 million um, colony forming units, which is, you know, a comparable to, to what, um, what you might get if you like opened up a capsule and, and took a tiny pinch of what was inside and, and sprinkled it in, into a bottle. Um, they're showing that there's, um, it's, you know, it's perfectly safe. It's well tolerated. It's resulting in noticeable improvements in things like, uh, stool consistency, uh, in those babies, and they're able to show that it's actually causing changes to fecal microbiome composition and uh, the biochemistry. So it's actually changing the fermentation products of bacteria in the gut, which is which is a good thing. And so these studies are actually you know, very they're well done, and they're um, they're they're very compelling evidence showing safety to even in 
teeny tiny babies that this is like a safe supplement for them to take. And there, there's a few other strains that have been well tested in babies as well. So when you see, um, you know, lactobacillus acidophilus uh, is has been studied in, in babies. Um, if you if you see those are t- the types of strains that you would see typically marketed for infants, um, often as uh, a powder that you could add to a bottle or as a liquid. Um, and you know they they have they have been well studied as being safe safe for infants. That's not true of all probiotics. So. Uh, an infant's microbiome. I was just going to ask, what is yeah. the base of the probiotic? Um, so, Bifidobacterium um, and lac- so Lactobacillus would typically grow in milk. Bifidobacterium would as well. So they're probably um, they're probably grown in in milk and then isolated. So there is the possibility for some milk proteins to be remaining in that particular capsule. It depends on exactly what brand. Um, and it depends on, right, like whether or not it depends on the purification process. Um, I would have to look up this particular brand's label to see if they have a, you know, may contain milk on the side. Um, but that's an important thing to look up, right? So if there is concern over a milk allergy or a milk intolerance um, to, to have a look at, at the, the labels and, and see if it says may contain milk. That is a possibility. Good to know. I, that was always my thing when the kids were younger and so sensitive. Um, most of the probiotics that I would find were uh, contaminated, so to speak, with milk. And it was always a toss up for me, like, was the probiotic worth it? Like, I don't know. So, um, and, and nobody can really figure that out. You, you know, your, your kids and, and all that kind of stuff more than anybody, but especially if it's off of, for example, like a high quality kefir or something like that, like there's a lot of complexities to the type of protein, um, that would get in there. So. One of the things that you you can do with these types of strains um, is you can potentially use them to um, to make something. They you know, make pro, like you can add it to like you can add Bifidobacterium infantis to a homemade sauerkraut um, and grow it that way, and then you're diluting those milk proteins so much, right? You're adding a, a capsule, say, to um, a batch of, of sauerkraut. It's so diluted by the time you're giving sauerkraut juice to your baby. Now, we're talking now like older babies. I think um, I think it's always different uh, when you're talking about, you know, babies who are, don't have a digestive tract that are ready for foods. Um, but there, there are ways that you could sort of like grow this at home. Um, I did pull up the label for the, um, Avivo Bifidobacterium, um, Infantis that is marketed for people, for people to use, which is the one that the Kari specifically asked about and that the studies use. And it does say may contain trace amounts of soy and or milk protein, it's um, free of all the other things, so it does it doesn't have all the other things, and it's a droppers that you can actually like drop in your baby's mouth. So, um, I mean, that is something to to keep to keep in mind that there are babies who are very very sensitive to to dairy proteins that can be so sensitive that even if the mom is drinking cow's milk, that the baby will react to the couple of intact proteins, and so that would be something that could be potentially concerning here the the rates of cow's milk allergies in babies i think if i remember correctly it's like 3 to 5% in young children um and it's a, it's one of the m- more common allergies and of course allergy rates in children are much higher than allergy rates in adults um i'd i'd have to i'd have to triple check that so please listeners don't uh, don't go just on that number but it it is um definitely it's a top t- top 10 allergen, it's definitely more common. Um, but your point of balancing the probiotic exposure 
to the potential allergen exposure, right? It's obviously going to be a problem if your baby's actually allergic. If your baby's not, then this potential probiotics exposure, if you're in a situation where you've, you've got all of these like checks in the cons column, right? All of these like, oh yeah, the chances of, you know, maybe I, me as a mom, right? Like, so me as a mom personally, Sarah Ballantyne, I spent a lot of my youth, teen years, and early adulthood uh, on antibiotics. I spent, there were uh, years where I were, was on 10, 12 courses of antibiotics, like basically two weeks out of every month on antibiotics um, for actually for years. Um, and so I, even though I, you know, I did have natural childbirths, or nat- I, natural vaginal childbirths, not necessarily completely natural. And I did breastfeed my children, you know, both, I, both until they were over two years old. Um, I don't think I had, like, I did the, I, I did those things. They were really high priorities for me. I mean, I, it was a, it was a close call on, on both of my childbirth experiences, but I got to give those things to my children, but I don't think I had a very good microbiome to pass on. Like I was not healthy. I was dealing with a lot of autoimmune and and other chronic, uh, immune issues. And I didn't have, right. I I probably didn't have bifidobacterium infantis to pass on to them. So even in that situation, I would be very tempted to do this. Now you can do stool testing in your baby and check and see if bifidobacterium infantis is there before deciding if you want to do this. And the other thing that you could do is look at, natural food sources. So bifidobacterium infantis can be found in a wild fermented sauerkraut. You might even find it in some um, lacto-fermented sauerkrauts in stores. So when you get a sauerkraut from a store, unless it's like a like a small you know local company that does a wild ferment, I've got a couple of those in my local Whole Foods that are wild ferments, but most of them use a starter culture. And the starter culture will, they'll usually, if they use a starter culture, they'll list the strains on the label. So you'll usually be able to find out exactly what strains. There can still be other strains, but you know whatever the starter culture strains are, those are the dominant strains of bacteria in those particular ferments. But Bifidobacterium infantis can be found in them. They can be found in some yogurts as well. Um, And so there is the sort of like food source of Bifidobacterium infantis. And sort of recall last week when we talked about other types of exposure, right? We get exposed to probiotics by being in the dirt, by being in nature. This is one of the main reasons why babies put everything in their mouth. It's actually exposing their bodies to probiotics. Um, It's also exposing their immune systems in very, very small amounts to small challenges to help their immune systems learn what's a big deal and what's not. Uh, So there's actually this like really important biological functions to the fact that that babies will like suck on their toes <laughs> and taste everything i can remember uh my 5 month old first child uh, army crawling cuz she couldn't properly crawl yet so she's just like slithering on the floor chasing the cat to try to lick the cat and this was the first time i realized as a parent that you often find yourself saying phrases you just never thought you would say like adele stop licking the cat Never thought, never thought that was a thing I was going to have to say, but apparently I did on multiple occasions. Um, so, but it is this like uh, really, it, it probably is a biologically necessary part of development where it exposes us to in, environmental challenges to help uh, educate our immune system as well as as environmental probiotics. And so that's one of the reasons why being outside in nature can be so beneficial. And it's also one of the reasons why exposure to probiotic foods can be so beneficial. It's all about new different strains. And so you can really catch up. So even if it's right. So Kari is talking about her one-year-old and her four-year-old. I think that doing a, a, a large probiotic, um, you know, it would definitely be worthwhile talking with her doctor about it. Um, But I think that you can, improve on that by exposing to a lot of different species by doing the probiotic food route as well as the environmental exposure route. Even things like visiting a farm, that's exposure to entirely different species of bacteria than what we would get in an urban environment. So go find a local farm and just go walk around. Like you don't need to lick the 
cows, you can you can just walk around and you're being exposed to those bacteria. And um, and so there's a lot of ways that we can replicate uh, that exposure with the environment. That being said, there's really good scientific studies in very young babies with um, the strain that's in in vivo, uh, not in vivo, in vivo, showing that it it is beneficial for for the infant gut. Um, it's just a question is as we get older. And once we start solids, that's no longer the dominant strain for a normal, healthy gut microbiome. The microbiome would have a lot more different types of bifidobacterium and lactobacillus, and um, you would get a lot more other types of strains. So you start looking more at diversity as being the more important factor compared to this one strain. I was at a talk in... um, February nutrition conference and uh, Dr. Zach Bush was there and he's quite the character. He did this really fascinating talk on how uh, glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, is impacting human health. And he really sort of draw draw this direct line between glyphosate use and pretty much all chronic health problems. It was a it was a really fascinating talk. And one of the things he he talked about was how glyphosate interferes with bacterial metabolism. There's actually some really good studies showing that glyphosate alters the gut microbiome, but not only that, it it halts um, the... So what it does is it interferes with something called the shikimate pathway, which is a metabolic pathway in bacteria. And our gut bacteria produce some very beneficial compounds for us through the shikimate pathway. So even if it doesn't kill those bacteria, it stops them from producing the beneficial compounds that help us. So they're there and basically not doing anything beneficial for us because of glyphosate, which is, again, another tangent. It's definitely a good argument for seeking out organic food. The main exposure to glyphosate that most people are getting is like grains. So they, for example, harvest wheat green, and then they spray it with Roundup to kill it and and dry it out faster. So that's that's the dominant exposure is through foods uh, that typically wouldn't be included on the paleo diet. So most of our listeners... Um, probably aren't getting exposed to a ton, but depending on where you live, there might be significant amounts in your tap water, for example. So not to go down this like scary train of thought, because this is one of those topics that there's still a lot more research needed. But one of the things that Dr. Bush said that I thought was really interesting, he said, you know, everyone thinks the the curious just take probiotics, but that's like a monocrop for your gut. And it was one of those phrases that I I laughed immediately because I thought it was so, it was astute, but also very, very amusing. It was a very just funny talk in general. Um, But I also have thought about that since, because I think you can look at that two ways. So you can look at it like what we talked about in last week's episode about um, providing a, a few key species that help create an environment that increases microbial diversity. And, And there's studies to back that up with certain species. There's another aspect to it, though. If you are doing a probiotic of the wrong species, there is the the potential to, through competition, inhibit the growth of some good guys that you might want, which is why the research on these really high-dose probiotics is kind of mixed. So in certain situations, it's outstanding because people have such severe undergrowth of probiotics that those bacteria really replace the bacteria that would normally be living in, in the gut. So this is seen in things like ulcerative colitis, for example. In other situations, it seems to be much better to get this exposure to smaller amounts of bacteria in a lot of different places. It's one of the things that actually I really like seeing about the Avivo stuff is that it's uh, you know 20 to 30 million colony-forming units as opposed to billions or trillions. And for a baby's gut, that makes a lot of sense for it to be on the smaller side. So it's more a uh, seeding the gut microbiome, and then it's still up to diet and the environment to help support the growth of those bacteria. And that is what is sort of functionally relevant when it comes to the gut microbiome is this idea that we're looking to uh, feed our gut bacteria through our diet uh, and also our lifestyle, because they're very sensitive to our hormone envi- environment as well. And then we're looking to expose ourse- 
access to as much variety in gut bacteria through things like probiotic foods and and environmental exposures rather than this idea of like throw a few trillion bacteria in there every single morning and hope that that magically fixes everything. It doesn't magically fix everything because exposure is only a small fraction of the determinant of our gut microbiome composition. 60% of it comes from our diet. So that's actually the most important part is that we eat the foods that support a gut microbiome. And my guess is that Kari has got that figured out for herself and her four-year-old. So exposure, she could definitely try Evivo for her kids. Um, but it's probably given that her, her youngest is one, she can probably replicate that in a lot of ways by seeking out uh, either some wild ferments or some fermented foods that have bifidobacterium infantis as one of the uh, bacteria that's added to the food. Oof. That was a lot. That was a lot. The, the Roundup stuff is super scary. I don't like talking about it. It gives me nightmares. <laughs> that's uh interesting there's like a pop-up on the ewg website that's like how to avoid the word that you pronounce that i can't say off the top of my head um in your food yeah yeah and i'm like i just happened to have seen like a message somewhere else (laughs) to avoid that as well um yeah (laughs) glyphosate's not not good but Bifidobacterium infantis is great. <laughs> what do you think your biggest takeaway is? So, for example, with you knowing what you know now about your child having a dairy allergy, would you have wanted to try to do this in the beginning? Or, I mean, I'm going to be real. Mm-hmm. Between making my own food and cloth diapering and breastfeeding and co-sleeping and uh, baby wearing and all of the things that we were doing, making our own probiotics for our infants off of sauerkraut probably wouldn't happen. Do, well, let's be frank. It didn't happen. Cause I knew all this stuff with Wesley and I was like, no, he's being breastfed. I'm not going <laughs> to worry right. about it. And then when he did start eating foods, then we, you know, slowly introduced foods that had probiotics and I didn't discourage him from, being dirty unless it was like, you know, crawling on a public bathroom floor or something like that, in which case we did wash up. Um, but beyond yeah. that, like I didn't do a probiotic and he they were C-section born. But knowing what I knew, I put them skin to skin immediately and basically went topless with them for the first week to make sure that my milk came in, you know, because I had a C-section, that kind of stuff was... I was lucky enough to do all of that kind of stuff and therefore just kind of let it roll. Um, so I guess my very long question to you <laughs> that I posed originally is like, what what do you think you would do knowing what you know now if you didn't have access to any of that? So knowing what I know now. So if I was um, before starting a family, I would be putting um, – I would have probably taken something like Just Thrive, which we talked about last week on the podcast, and I probably would be layering on top of that Bifidobacterium and Lactobacillus, including Bifidobacterium infantis. Yes, I think I would have taken it, and I would have gone to extensive lengths to eat all the vegetables and the seafood and the probiotic foods. And I would probably, like if I was looking at oh, hey, you know, I'm, I'm pregnant or I, I'm trying to get pregnant, um, knowing what I know now and my health issues and how tied autoimmune disease is to the gut microbiome, I would be probably obsessing <laughs> about all the different things that I could do to improve my gut microbiome for my baby. If I was, um, you know, new baby, uh, hey, look, these probiotics exist, um, I'm breastfeeding, but I probably have a pretty, uh, mediocre microbiome to pass on. Yes. I can say unequivocally that I would be giving this supplement to my babies because I did give them lactobacillus acidophilus. So I did do that because at the time of, you know, 12 years ago, almost, um, when I had my first baby, 
there was a lot of research about lactobacillus acidophilus being beneficial for babies. And um, I ran an, even back then, ran in a fairly crunchy granola crowd. And so I was literally opening up the capsules and putting a little bit on my nipple before breastfeeding. Like that was how I was uh, exposing my child to that. So, um, so I think that knowing what I know now about the Bifidobacterium infantis and, and that being available now when it wasn't available 12 years ago, I would have probably added that to the mix and then dealt with signs of allergy if they occurred. So um, probably I think I would have prioritized exposure to the probiotics over fear of um, the trace milk and soy causing an allergy. Um, and then if I was at where um, Kari is at with a one-year-old and a four-year-old, I'd be treating it the same way I treat my kids now, which is, uh, you know, making my own uh, homemade water kefir, buying the really great wild fermented sauerkraut from the, the local, um, you know, Russian couple that are so sweet that used to be at my farmer's market, but now they're my local Whole Foods, so I don't, I don't get to see them as much anymore. Um, and, um, you know, buying kombucha and then, uh, you know, I, I would be doing, I would end the exposure, right? Like, let's go camping, let's go hiking and, and try to just be in lots of different environments. Let's go visit a, a farm. I mean, we do that like once a year. It's not like it's a frequent thing, but I think I would be probably treating it with, if them as young kids is the same I am now, which is let's do all the things that we know are good for supporting gut bacteria and then do the obvious things for, for exposure, but without necessarily going super crazy on the supplement bad wagon. So you talked about the scenario in the case of all the things that you would do. So let's say via a C-section, the baby doesn't get the benefit of that stuff and you have a medical condition that doesn't allow you to breastfeed. Worst case scenario, or let's say you've adopted a, a newborn and you don't have that opportunity, mm -hmm. um, but you're concerned about allergies or something like that. Like, I guess what I'm asking is when it comes to the cost benefit analysis and, and all that kind of stuff, is it worth it to give it a shot? Um, and to see how the baby responds with um, a probiotic that might be based on dairy or um, to try to do some of these alternative things. Like, I'm just trying to figure out what I would have done differently had I not had the advantages that I had. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. for people coming in, worst case scenario, how can we help them? My personal evaluation, if it was me, is that I would have given my, my kid the probiotic. I would have also, once they started solid foods, tried to figure out exposures to, you know, more diverse probiotics. But um, my, if I was in that situation with how compelling the research is with, with this particular strain, um, that's what I would have done personally. I would have been like, hey, uh, I think the chances are pretty low that you have this really beneficial bacteria and I want to give it to you. And look, here it comes in a dropper. Uh, oh, you know, and I would have just like, chugga, 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 choo-choo. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, um, that's, that's how I would have evaluated the cost benefit analysis for that. That doesn't mean that that's how everyone should evaluate that cost benefit analysis. Um, I definitely recommend having a conversation with uh, your pediatrician about it and, and getting their advice on, on the whole thing. I mean, most people are, I would say most doctors are fairly like, well, sure, do a probiotic. Like they don't necessarily, they're not I digging was gonna into say, the literature. I mean, my doctor didn't even understand like the basics of breastfeeding and how vitamin D sufficiency is different in a breastfed baby versus not. Like there was right. some basic like science-backed information that left me scratching my head at newborn visits. And I just was like, uh-huh, sure, I'm giving him Ray cereal. <laughs> it's true. But uh, at the same time, like if you think that there's a chance that your baby's going to develop an allergy to the dairy proteins that are in that probiotic, you want your pediatrician to be to be in the know so that if you start seeing so like signs that you would see in a in a purely either formula fed or best breastfed infant would be things like mucus in the stools or blood in the stools uh, is usually and then like colic type you know crying 
um, those are typically the signs. So it's not the same way an allergy typically presents in an adult. And so um, you want a pediatrician who's going to be like, oh, hey, yeah, here it is, the sign of the allergy. Stop that thing, right? Like, um, I, I, yeah. I still, no, a, right? I'm a, good... a big fan of having doctors at least in the loop, if not, a, you know, part of the, you know, super nerdy conversation that leads to the decision. I, I really do think that it's important to at least inform your doctor that, hey, I'm going to do this, but I have this concern. What do you think? Okay, great. Uh, you know, what do you think I should look out for? And, uh, you know, I'll come back in X period of time if I think there's a problem, right? Like, I think that's a, a still a very uh, valuable conversation to have. They do go to school for a very long time. They know a lot of stuff. They don't know everything, Which but they just do know a lot of me, things. Like, do a little Googling sometime. But it's, I mean, it's a good point if you're talking to a doctor and, you're not feeling like their knowledge or ideals don't match up with yours as a pediatrician, as an OBGYN, as a regular MD. While Sarah and I wholeheartedly endorse seeking medical professionals, because we are not one, um, for that sort of guidance in your life, I would also highly encourage you to find someone that makes you feel comfortable, um, which is a lesson I didn't learn until way too late. Like, I... I still have some trauma <laughs> from my OBGYN experience with Cole. And it was a lesson that I learned and I, you know, made improvements after that. But, um, you know, if you're talking to a doctor about potential child allergies and benefits of probiotics and they look at you and shrug or say something that you don't think jives with the information that you believe after becoming educated on it, look for another doctor that might be more aligned to your train of thought. So, and you might not necessarily be right. That's not to say that a doctor telling you, well, this information is conflicting. That's entirely different than what I sometimes encountered with pediatric doctors, which was, um, the handouts in the front lobby endorsed by, you know, people who dropped off samples of things and right. not much thought went into it. I was like, eh, this isn't really the service I'm looking for. So. I, I really like having a doctor who tells me when they disagree, but who listens to me. So when I say, hey, I read, now granted, I go in and I'm like, let me pull out all my big medical words and talk really smart. Like I have a PhD in medical biophysics or something because I kind of do. Um, so I, I mean, I do have this like great relationship development with my kid's pediatrician where I go, well, hey, how about this, this, this? And then she goes, well, how about this, this, this? And we come to a consensus and I, you know, I really respect her opinion, but she also listens to mine and respects mine. So we end up typically being on the same page, like, hey, is this a thing that deserves antibiotics? Yes or no? How about we wait a couple of days? Like we have these conversations and things, you know, the things with kids' health is often it ends up being a, you know, there's, there's. Uh, an obvious answer or there's not, right? Like it's either a yes, go ahead, do this thing, or I don't know. And in the case of I don't know, I would rather usually like, okay, well, let's let's wait. Let's see what happens. You know, like if we don't know that this is a bacterial infection that needs antibiotics, let's let's hang out. Let's give it a day and see what happens. And my pediatrician is like wholeheartedly on board because she doesn't like overprescription of antibiotics either. So that that relationship though is something developed over time and it takes going into an appointment with information but without that like with still having an open mind to additional information and so i i want my pediatrician to be like no that's wrong and and oh okay well 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 why like why am i wrong okay well this is this and i'm like oh okay um i i i'm okay not being right sometimes as long as it's not my husband. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> and and even then, you're right. You're just not, you know, with everybody else. Like right. that's that's marriage. Let's let's be real. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for going all into the science on that and also letting me put you on the spot and saying what would you do because I can tell that you were like, um, what I would do is not what everybody would do. And like, we, 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 me representing all of our listeners, we get that. 
Yeah. But we also know that you have knowledge on the science that helps you evaluate cost-benefit analysis, risk. I just don't want people to do something just because I would do it. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, Sarah Sarah says she would do it, so I'll do it. Like, I want everyone to, like, do the research and think about it and figure out if it's right for you. And, like, I can certainly – I'm happy to share – you know, what my choice would be, but that doesn't mean that my choice is right for everyone. Our so. listeners are definitely that smart. Come on. They, they just are. listen to an hour of your science. Like they're, they're <laughs> making educated decisions. Half of them are having a nap right now. They're fast <laughs> well, and if they're they like, listen to our hear, sleep shows. That's true. Then they, they know, know it's that all that's good. A good thing. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing. It's a good, good as Cole would say. Um, did you see my Instagram stories tonight? Cole made dinner. He did. I didn't see the stories. I should go check them out. What did he make? He made um, like a soup stew with leftovers in the fridge. We had ham that he chopped up and we had cabbage that he chopped up Mm. and he threw in the ham bone into some chicken broth that we had in the fridge and like just made essentially a ham cabbage soup, which was honestly delicious. It sounds great. And Finn was trying to troll and say... That dinner wasn't good, and then he went for seconds. <laughs> We're like, we got you. Um, yeah. So anyway, just whoop, so whoop, shout out just to my boy to Cole. Get the competition going, so Finn can have his night tomorrow. So here's the thing, and this is completely off topic. And listeners, this is what you get for hanging around this long. So we had a family meeting tonight, and we talked about how like they were old enough to help more in the house, and how. That was our expectation. They live a very privileged life filled with everything they could ever want. And they can do a little more to help us around the house, which is what I was raised doing and what I think helped me be a successful adult. And so um, they were all for it, which was awesome. They each picked a day of the week. I asked them to pick one day of the week that they would want to cook and Cole picked two voluntarily and then Finn picked one night and one he wants to do brunch on Sunday so he's gonna have two meals to cook and of course like we're helping them but Cole legit chopped up all the onions and the cabbage and everything for the stew and um so we did a meal plan with the days of the week that they're gonna cook their foods and they were excited they got to choose the meal um Finn has been scrolling Pinterest (laughs) like looking for his ideas and um It's awesome. And I just, I don't know. I feel like good gravy. They smell bad and they're obnoxious. And (laughs) like, I mean, you saw them, you know, they're, they're by no means perfect, but there are moments, there are glimpses where I'm like, okay, like it's, I'm I'm doing it. It's all right. Like they're going to turn out to be humans that are, that are okay functioning in the adult world. And, um, tonight when Cole made, dinner and it was amazing and then I was like Cole what do you have to say to um children out there who aren't yet cooking cooking dinner he said something totally sarcastic I think it was like um get to work or something like that (laughs) I was like yep there it is there's there's that's what I thought (laughs) that's fantastic yeah well I know what we're talking about at our next family meeting there you go Family meetings are where it's at, man. I call them all the time. <laughs> we've we've had, like, we go through periods of time where we, like, we'll have them every week and then, like, things will be okay for a while and we'll kind of, like, start, like, oh, yeah. They kind of fall off and then you're like, oh, no, there's this thing. Family meeting. Yeah. Then, well, we have them for good and for bad. Like, sometimes, yeah. you know, we had a lot of family meetings when we were talking about getting the dog. You know, it was like right. we needed a lot of discussion together. It just means we all need to be talking and listening to each other at the same time, so... All right. Well, for those of you with infants and you're thinking about whether or not to consider probiotics, just know that in 13 years, maybe that child will make you dinner and everything will be great. (laughs) (laughs) It won't matter how they were born or if they were breastfed. That's right. They'll be making you dinner. Um, Have a wonderful week, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. And we will, of course, be back again next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. It is really cold in my office. I wish that I had not let 
my neighbor borrow my juve so that I could turn it on for heat. <laughs> Uh, that is my favorite thing about the juve is like it's like the only time of the day I'm like actually warm enough. Yeah, I'm I like just my I'm just sitting slippers. here thinking like, hmm, I could turn my juve on and be like doing red light therapy while podcasting and warm. So I want to get my hands on a juve go and then just like tuck it under my clothing against my like <laughs> skin and just work like that all day. That is my. You have to like rotate it around, right? Right. So, but like I set a timer, like every like 10 minutes, just move it onto another body part, <laughs> but just like, like, like in the waistband. Right. So it's just like there, I'm going to, maybe I'll get one of those, um, like Velcro strap things that, you know, how you can get like heating pads that Velcro strap onto your back, uh-huh. like get something like that for the, I don't know if they make some, they need to, they don't make a Velcro strap for it. I'm going to put in my request. And I told you about that too, right? Uh-huh. I've had a lot of going on in my life lately seeking the truth never gets old introducing june's journey the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery join june parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s with new chapters added every week the excitement never ends Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.